Hello and welcome. I am your host, Michael Sherlock. Shocking, isn't it? I develop leaders and sales professionals all across the globe. I help them to tap into and achieve their true potential every day. I'm a business writer, speaker, and now host for this podcast, Shock Your Potential. Come on and join me. Let's learn and laugh together. Welcome to another edition of Shock Your Potential, my little podcast where I focus on excellence in business leadership sales, and the customer experience. And as I've been on this journey now for the last four months uh, being live and six or seven months of actually taping episodes, I find that the joy for me in this process is finding more people, organizations, and businesses that are truly trying to shock their community, their industry, you know, the world that make a difference and really leave a mark. And my guest today, her story, what she's doing and what she's trying to accomplish to me, in my view, is shocking for all the right reasons. And I think that uh, especially after you hear not only what she's doing, but how she's doing it and why she's doing it, I think that you're going to be very impressed and a little shocked yourself. Now, I've already warned her that I'll probably screw up the pronunciation of her last name, but I'm going to give it a shot. So I'd like to welcome today a lovely woman named Mona Javeri. Did I do it right, Mona? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Welcome to my podcast. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Michael. It is so great to have you. So it's fun because I found you because of somebody else I interviewed. And Andrea has been such a source of so many great people. She's connected to so many people and organizations that when I interviewed her for her mobile apps for charity uh, organization a few months ago, she has just continued to introduce me to great people like you. And you have a very unique organization that you call soundeffects.org. Org, and that's affects with an A. So the English literature uh, person in me has to make sure to have the affects versus effects. <laughs> but Mona, tell us a little bit about your organization and why you're doing this and why it is something that really should be shocking to us all. Yeah. No, again, thank you so much for having me, Michael. Um, I- I'm going to back up a little bit and maybe just say a little bit about myself. I'm a trained cancer researcher. So Sound Effects is a charity, and most charities are born out of people who suffered disease or, you know, had some either direct or indirect contact with the illness. But in my case, that was not the story. I I haven't personally been affected by cancer, but I I am coming at this from a different angle as. I'm a trained cancer researcher. And so my journey uh, started back in, let's just say, the the 90s, um, yeah, sort of the mid-90s when I was working at the National Cancer Institute. And my specific expertise is that I'm a, what they call a molecular biology, which means I worked with RNA and DNA and and that was the the time, I, I call it the genomic era, when we were playing around with all that stuff in the lab. Um, it's the kind of thing we did in the lab, but it wasn't the kind of thing that people knew about, the public knew about or spoke about. 
I agree. And let me just interject for a moment, yeah. because as I know, the first time that we spoke and you were talking about that, you know, I actually have a, a you know, a, a friend from past life who, you know, kind of had a very similar position. So I understood the concepts a little bit, but I think it's really important. I'm glad you're telling this story about, you know, the, the basis for disease. And in the case of your specialty with cancer, it comes down to very small parts of our bodies and our make, com- chemical makeup, our biological makeup. Up. You know, so even before you get through the rest of your story, what got you interested in that as a career path? Yeah, <clears throat> that's interesting too, because I I always loved science and I was headed to a doctoral program. And it seemed when I got into my doctoral program, and this is at Wake Forest University at their medical school, they basically, you know, gave us three choices. It's you either do cancer, heart disease, or AIDS, HIV. I I guess it seemed like uh, not many people were doing cancer and I would just try it. (laughs) It wasn't like, I didn't have any real um, compelling reason. It it was more, I'll just, I'll just try it. But when I began the program, I fell in love with the study of carcinogenesis. Um, And to this day, I'm fascinated and I love reading of um, sort of the books that come out uh, written by famous um, oncologists uh, that have shared their the path of a sort of our war on cancer. And I'm, I feel like I'm the only person that sort of loves to delve into this stuff, but I, I do. I, I've always loved it and I continue to love it. And I, I remember one time coming home for Thanksgiving and sharing this love for, oh, I love cancer and um, with some friends and people were looking at me. that well at Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah, that didn't, right. <laughs> And then I realized, you know, I I can't really talk about what I do. And I realized very early, you know, when we were sitting there trying to figure out how does this cancer cell work? And in our specific case, because what was happening sort of in this journey in cancer, we for decades have been using uh, chemotherapy and we still do. It's still the frontline form of fighting cancer. But what was happening at the time and what we were consumed with is why is it people's disease comes back and why when it comes back, it comes back with a bigger sort of more aggressive um, and almost different cancer. Yeah. So many times it comes back, not only with a vengeance, but really to, you know, almost like the first time was a trial run to see how you could handle it. And the second time it's like, okay, I know all your weaknesses. I'm going after you. Yeah. So it's like the craziness of this disease that it's pathologically changing every time you hit something with it. Right. And so our job in the lab is to try to figure out what is the basis of what we call this drug resistance. And that's that sort of was an entire field of study um, that that where I was deep into um, when I started my career. And one thing that had happened is um, we had discovered pieces of DNA that we found were killing cancer cells. And we realized, I mean, we didn't develop them to do that. That happened by accident. Um, As we were like slicing and dicing DNA, we realized, oh, wow, wow, these pieces can actually kill cells. And then we realized, well, this could be a potential treatment. And in this case, the cancer that we were after was ovarian cancer. And as you know, it's a very deadly cancer for women. Yes, um, absolutely. And, and definitely needs more attention. 
so what we did was we filed a patent and then we took the invention at this point, because that's what it is, and we spun out a company. And in doing that, we left the world of academia and then we entered the world of what we call biotechnology. And I say this slowly because in fact, these are two distinct worlds because in academia, we were doing research and development and discovery. And in biotechnology, we were on a whole other track, which was the commercialization of our science. To find and- a way to take what you'd you'd found and uncovered and, and mostly by accident, you know, in terms of this, but to turn it into something that could be a cure take it to market. That's, right. that was, that was the mindset. How do we take what we found and actually get it into the, into the clinic and into the hands of people that need it. And so with that transition, even though, you know, you're kind of in, in a way the spaces are blurred, but the goals are different and the objectives are different. Um, and you're taking it through an FDA process, which, you know, you don't have to do in academia. Right. And importantly, the funding pools are different. And so what was available to us as grants, as researchers, is, was not and still is not available to people developing biotechnologies. And so the kinds of funders in the biotech world are investors. And what was happening, um, sort of the field of biotechnology started to grow and emerge. And I guess initially there is naivete and people were investing in all kinds of things, but only to realize that biotech is really risky. The failure rates are really high. And over time, what was happening is that investors start realizing they don't want to go in early into a technology. They want to wait until this technology has been de-risked and has proven principle uh, and importantly has gone through some kind of FDA approval process, hopefully has even been in the clinic in patients. Um, but the, to, that, to that end, to get a, a, an innovation from lab into a human is millions of dollars and is a, a lot of development. And there are no pools uh, of funding that are available to people in the space to easily access. So let me let me interrupt for just a moment because I know when we spoke the first time, you know, I'd never really thought about this and it was shocking to me because and I you know and you use the word naivete and I think, you know, from your standpoint, you know, taking it from being a researcher to trying to apply it from biotech, but from being an individual and really thinking, um, and I know we'll get into this a little bit later, but, you know, somewhere in my own naivety, a naivete <laughs> in being naive, I, I assume that, you know, that there's all this funding going on to help find cures. And I really hadn't stopped to think of the business aspect of it, that so much has to be not, not that it has to be, but that it is driven by investors who are looking for a return. And that's a really important, critical business differentiation is that, yes, they still might want to find a cure because it's very, you know, that it's, it sounds wonderful and that's great for our whole world and arms around us, kumbaya singing. But a lot of them, it's, it's a business transaction. And if you can't move the product fast enough to market, you can't get it past those elements. Like you said, if it's too early in the process and you can't, you know, it's still going to be a decade before you can get a clinical trial, their return on investment is not, is not only not certain, but it's not, it's not immediately recognizable to, you know, for financial gain. And that 
makes it less attractive to people that want to fund it that may that need to fund it so that you can make that happen. There's a lot of pieces to this puzzle. Yeah, so I think you hit the nail on the head in two ways. Uh, as you say, uh, the cures might be out there, but they just may not be developed enough or something may not be quite right that an investor will hit the green light. And what does that mean for the public's health? <laughs> it means that we are missing opportunities. Absolutely. And so this this whole, and this is really what's happening. And that's basically what I'm, and, and as, as a leader of sound effects, is trying to shed light on is that we as, as scientists and as biotech entrepreneurs are innovating like crazy, but what's actually making it to the clinic, it doesn't reflect the number of things that are out there in, in being developed or trying to be developed. And so what's happening and what happened in my case is that we couldn't raise the critical funds to move forward. And so our innovation sort of disappeared. And with that, the potential of a new treatment for ovarian cancer also disappeared. And like I said, it wasn't just my issue, and it's not even simply an industry issue. It's a, it's a consequence of national and global health, because if we're not fueling our innovators, we're not moving the needle when it comes to advancing diseases. And that, like I said, is what, where we're trying to raise the awareness. Um, and this, in our industry, we have a term for uh, what I've sort of described this tragedy as, um, we call it the valley of death, where great ideas go to die because they lack the critical funding to move forward. And I think that's really, really important to, you can't overstate that enough that, you know, you said it just a, a, a moment ago that, you know, there are potential treatments, hopefully cures, but definitely forward progress that is available, but you can, you can only take it so far without the funding to make it happen. These things take millions and millions of dollars often just to be able to prove it long enough to far enough to the FDA to say, okay, you can take it to the next level and actually maybe even give us some proof that you could try it on human beings. I mean, even getting to that point, you know, how much, you know, the, the level of research and data and, you know, trials and errors you have to get even before you get to the point where somebody could take a, you know, just a, a you know, concept cure or treatment and try it. So that gap is huge. And I don't think, like I said, I didn't even recognize that. And, and I know as we spoke too, and we were talking about, you know, all these things that so many of us try to do to help support this. You know, I just wrote a check to, you know, a friend of mine doing, you know, run the Philly steps and it's for leukemia. And uh, my friend, her father passed away from leukemia. My father passed from leukemia, you know, so you're thinking I'm writing a hundred dollar check so she can go run up the stairs and feel good. And we're helping support, you know, treatments in leukemia. But can you talk about yeah, how that yeah. gap applies there too? No, and I'm glad you brought that up because that was my my other point is um, when you taught when you began with the naivete, I think this is the other half of the problem. So on one side we have this issue going on in the industry, and it's siloed, like because the public doesn't know about it. And what the public does know or is conditioned with is research for the cure. And what happens is we have these, as you were saying, these walks and these runs and these galas and people spend their money and the money goes to research 
that too, it's not exactly clear where and what happened and what came out of the research and whether discovery was done and whether that particular research actually made it, you know, became a discovery that then made it to the clinic. Like it's, we as, as donors can't, can't track that. Exactly. Right? Yeah. You don't, you and don't on top know. Of it, yeah. We don't know. And on top of it, we're inculcated with this rhetoric that I believe, you know, started in the seventies when Nixon declared war on cancer and the rhetoric was, you know, fund research for the cure. And yet researchers don't develop cures, right? right? They just discover. Um, and, uh, but if you talk to people today, even our younger generation, we're still talking, uh, we're still saying the same rhetoric of the 70s, when in fact, an entire industry has emerged, it's the biotech industry, it's been going on for decades, and these are the, the folks that are innovating and commercializing. We've done a poor job in our, as leaders in, in the health community in terms of bridging what's going on research-wise and innovation-wise with the public. And so, for example, I was a speaker at South by Southwest, and you know this Mm -hmm. meeting in Austin, and the conference is essentially a tech, a, a large part of it is showcasing tech, all kinds of tech, from apps to gaming to AI and VR and fintech and but what's missing is biotech. Yes. It's always absent in these um, sort of popular culture spaces. And the question is why? Because we all, many of us do suffer, have suffered, will suffer, and innovations around health are really important. Uh, so why is it that we can't talk in public popular culture forums about the latest immunotherapies, about the latest cell therapies or the sequencing the genome or whatever it is. Like, why are these words absent and why have we done such a poor job in getting these new ideas and these new breakthroughs that we've been doing for decades in the lab, by the way, as I said, in the nineties, what I was doing in the lab is now surfaced and is, is becoming um, part and parcel to new developments and new innovations. Well, and and let me, you know, as the more you talk, I I have this thought that I want to share with you because it's a little bit of a concept that I've talked about when I've led sales teams uh, over the years and different types of organizations is that sometimes you have people, you know, their skill set and their vision is in one area. And then you have other people who have a a different vision and you need them both to be successful. And let me give you an example is, you know, from, as I'm listening to you talk about, you know, the research and the amount of research, there's no question, there's been a significant amount of research, but most research, and I think you're very unique because you were able to bridge this gap. Most researchers, this is a very big generalization that I'm going to, to make a blanket mm-hmm. statement. Um, so obviously there are people that are outside this norm, but most, many researchers are focused on their passion is the research. And that is where their focus is. That's where their vision is. They're excellent at it. But that is a different vision and focus than somebody who says, I know how to take this now and give it commercial application, which is how, you know, our medicine is, you know, is 
uh, consumed, you know, and I don't just mean, uh, you know, consumed in our bodies, but that's how medicine is consumed is on this commercialized scale, you know, who, yeah. what insurance company is going to pay, you know, every time I go into my dentist and they say, it's time to take some more x-rays in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, does my insurance cover this? You know, why are we doing these x-rays? Oh yeah. So you can also tell me I need another filling, you know, or we needed to replace another filling just like I had done. And I think that, you know, that is a really important characteristic to understand if there's still significant amounts of research being done and have been done for decades, yet the focus with that is not always on the the ability to bridge that to the commercialized side of healthcare, treatments, cures, hopefully, um, that's mm-hmm. a huge gap. And, and that's where, you know, your funding gap, if you're I'm sorry, what do you, you call it again? The valley of death. The valley of death and yeah. funding. And then the gap between the researchers and, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the commercialization of it, that is, that becomes as big as the Grand Canyon. How do we overcome that? So we can start to have cocktail conversations, not about the fact that I donated to, you know, Big Philly Climb, but, uh, you know, in, in term in support of leukemia mm-hmm. research, but how do I talk about now I know what kind of, you know, treatments are available for, you know, someone, you know, I have a friend of mine who just was diagnosed with breast cancer in the last two weeks. You know, what do I get to the point where I can say, Hey, and guess what? I know she's, she's working on these, you know, great new treatment options that are biotech, uh, you know, miracles for us. How do we bridge that? Yeah. And I think that's the goal of sound effects. That's what, that's the paradigm we, we want to shift basically. Um, so sound effects essentially is a crowdfunding platform, um, very much in the same vein as Kickstarter. And, but the difference with us is that instead of, and you know what Kickstarter is, right? Yes, you know absolutely. how it works. Yep. You want to fund a movie, you want to fund a widget or whatever it may be. Yep. And it's Ours is the same thing except cancer solutions, new diagnostics, new treatments, new clinical tools, whatever it may be. Um, And in our case, we're a charity. So the dollar is a tax deductible dollar. But we, so we, we, the idea of creating it as a, as a charitable crowdfunding platform is that we wanted a way for the public to rally around solutions that they cared about and to directly fund people who are actively working on these solutions to bring them to market versus researchers, right, who are in academia and the, that path is less clear or direct, right? right. So uh, so that's like the first reason, you know, so it's so sort of part one of, of, of our platform. But the hard part with what we're doing is here we have this crowdfunding platform and we want to rally the crowd. But yet the crowd doesn't know what biotech is. Exactly. The crowd still talks about finding cures in the lab. So this created a very difficult situation because now that now we, so we not only have to fund these innovations, but we now have to change an entire culture around cancer. Um, and and that is has become you know a, a big priority for us. So we said, how do we do this? How do we shift? Uh, like I said, this entire paradigm around fighting and financing the war on cancer. And we decided uh, to use music as a medium to do that. And music has been used for uh, all kinds of, um, you know, various charities and so forth. It's not like it's a, that part is not necessarily new, but our approach of how we're using music is new in that 
we work with developing artists. We don't work with celebrities. So we don't have like a face like many other organizations do. And you know how it is. You pay your your um, <laughs> money for some gala, yes. then you watch John Legend, and then you whatever. And, and you, you feel, know. Good. Uh, <laughs> feel good. So in, in our case, it's not like that. We actually brought on developing artists to align with us. And then we give them a challenge. And we say, look... Um, Guys, we're going to challenge you uh, to uh, do a fundraising challenge. And the artists that raise the most get to perform at an event that we call Music Beats Cancer. And so we started trying this out um, because we realized um, that these young artists actually are very powerful influencers and very powerful fundraisers. And so it's kind of, I, I want to sort of make the analogy to the 17-year-olds and the and who are sort of fighting against the NRA. Um, <laughs> we found that the younger generation is really good at this. Yes. They're really raw. You know, they, they can, they're not like me. Like, I feel like I'm too polished and no one would listen to me or I'm too, <laughs> what's the word? Like, you know. Too like, old. <laughs> too old, whatever it may old, be. I, they're more real. Um, and they can manage this media I'd say uh, better than, you know, someone like me, but, and so capitalizing on this younger generation and and they also get this idea of and they want to be a a part of something bigger than themselves. Yes, absolutely. And they, they also buy into a different power structure, which we don't speak about, but it's really real. Um, Whereas, you know, normally in biotech and other fields, you know, the power comes from, people with money and people who are sitting in positions. Whereas in the new world, power is moving peer to peer, like the Me Too movement. And no one quite owns it, but everyone's part of it and everyone can shape it. And it's a whole new way of um, shifting how we do things. And now the power is with the people and there's sort of the democratization, right, of how we maneuver in life. Whereas in the old world, um, that just didn't exist and we didn't operate that way. And these younger folks are do it really well. So I find them, you know, and I find musicians in general, and I think music as a medium has always been um, something that sort of gathers people and it moves the crowd and inspires the crowd. And I think musicians have the ability and the unique responsibility to uh, shape culture. And that's why we think, uh, that's why we want to partner with these artists. And sort of more recently, um, one thing I've been trying to do is get um, a a bigger music platform involved. Um, Maybe it's a Spotify or it's a YouTube or something bigger so that we can take this message to a bigger uh, and put it on a bigger microphone, if, if, if yes, you will. Yes. And you know what? As you've been talking, Mona, when we when we get done taping, I have brainstormed a new idea. It might just be another one other avenue for you, but I have a really good idea. <laughs> it kind of coordinates with uh, something I'm going to be launching later this fall. And I think they're a okay. great medium. And But as you were talking about music too, I was thinking about you know, one of the things about music is it doesn't matter what genre, how old you are, music gives us a common language. And so if you have, um, you know, a common language, because people who enjoy music, you know, they might enjoy different kinds of music, but 
you know, there, I don't know anyone who doesn't enjoy music. Um, I know I've met a number of people who are deaf who still, you know, feel, you know, their hands on the speaker because there's a, you know, the vibration and there's a sense of joy that comes from that. And if you can take that common language and you can give it some common focus, like here is something we can tackle together and you can let, especially at, at the next generation um, and I mean, other than my generation and older, but, you know, kind of the, the upcoming generations start to look differently. You know, we saw, to your point, we saw in our lifetime that cancer treatment was going to come, the cure was going to come by the picture I could, I could see of a person, you know, in the white lab coat with the goggles on sitting in front of a Petri dish. And somehow our funding was going to make the cure happen in that Petri dish, but the cure never happens in the Petri dish. You may have a, a glimmer of how it can happen, but it takes, that's only one step and you can take it farther. So on this platform that you have chosen to go, I can see how this common language and a different vision of it and putting it in a different context could really create in, in these next generations, a sense of how they can and will find treatments without looking at it through our lenses. Right. And how they can be part of a process that the public has never been part of. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. And that's hands on. Yeah. That's sort of the, the, the new power that I'm speaking to. Um, and I think also getting back to the music component, music, like you said, it sort of transcends age. Um, all cultures have music and, and that too, cancer is global. It's not, both music and cancer are everywhere on the planet. Um, and, and I think we used to think of cancer as a, as a first world problem, um, but but it's not true. It's no, it's not at all. There. And as we speak, there's su- certain countries where the this cancer rates are skyrocketing. Um, and, and and yet, cancer is not considered a global health problem. It's scary. It's strange because cancer is part and parcel of being human, is being a multicellular being. Yes. It's always been with multicellular beings even like they they found tumors in dinosaurs and it will always be with us because it's in part a bit of evolution um as some people would describe it's not a disease like um like smallpox or polio it's not caused by a single agent it's our genes that are altering and changing and for the most part we don't really know why and what's making these changes. Um, we have, you know, hypotheses, but we, we don't have necessarily real reasons. Um, in fact, there've been studies that say, you know, two thirds of all, uh, cancer cases are random, right? They didn't come from genetic purposes or smoking or whatever it may be. So I, I also believe in this conversation, we will shift what cancer really is. And so this whole cure for cancer, even the word cure doesn't entirely make sense because they're never really going to cure it because a, there's so many cancers and B Cancer is can't be put in the same category as other diseases. It's 
Right. It's, Absolutely. It's a different Especially thing. for how many, how many different, like you said, how many different kinds, how many different types. And it's interesting that you say this because um, actually earlier this week, uh, on Sunday this week, a gentleman who works worked for my husband who has been struggling, he had uh, cancer, he had treatment, he went into remission and it came back and it came back with a vengeance. And yep. very, he was very young, uh, 42, I believe, and he passed away on Sunday. And it, it was, you know, my husband has struggled with it. All the people that worked there, I've met this, you know, young man many, many times. He was just a joy. And I, you know, and then with our other friend who was just diagnosed last week. And I said to my husband, I said, I don't understand how we can be where we are today and not have more ways to not have everybody getting cancer. And he looks at me and he goes, honey, we are cellular creatures. It's going to happen. So it's not a question of if or why can't we stop it. It's a matter of how we treat it. And and you know, even though you and I spoke a couple of weeks ago, it sunk in again. And as you said it, I think it's such an important reminder is that you're right. We may not we're not going to find a cure. There is no a cure, but we can find treatments that give us a much better outcome and much better opportunity, but we're gonna have to do it, find it by doing things differently than we're doing. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, in my opinion, and what I always say is the answers are with the innovators. They are the Absolutely. ones that are looking for the gaps. And what's really interesting when you're sitting like in my shoes, I, I see people innovating around um, issues that you didn't even know were real. Um, for example, we have um, a company that's working on a new way to deliver drugs using magnets. And they're going to apply it to children's ears because some children uh, undergoing chemo lose their hearing and they can't take drugs orally because it interferes with their chemo. But they can take drugs locally, but there's no way to bring it, put, put a drug in an ear, except in this way, with this new sort of magnet-based drug delivery system, they're able to actually you know, administer drugs to the cochlea such that it protects the hearing in children. And, uh, and why, when I heard, learned of this, my first reaction is, wow, I didn't even know this was an issue. Oh, um, yes, and it is. And I think I told you, I spent 10 years of my yeah. career in, in hearing healthcare. And when you told me that before, I was, yeah. I thought, oh my God, what a difference that will make because the number of people, children and adults who end up with hearing loss because of their cancer treatment. I mean, it's it's better because the drugs are less ototoxic today than they were for yeah. the most part before, but they are yeah. still are. And if you don't know how to you know, protect it or if the doctor thinks the cure is more important than the loss of hearing, then- you know, or the right. treatment, then you right. may not even know or find that it, you know, that there are options. I think that's fantastic. How exciting to see something like that. But that's right. innovative, you know, to think about it from magnets as as the way to distribute the the medication. Right. And so it used to be we're just we're gonna save your life. Now yeah. it's we we're gonna save your life and improve, you know, the quality of life where where treatment has created side effects. Um, this is, you know, this has become a, the focus and the focus of a lot of innovators. Is that we know now what chemo is doing. We know how people are struggling the rest of their lives. And in some cases, even with younger people who get chemo and we're getting vast amounts of it, they then present with heart disease or they then have something later. Yes. That, um, so now we, we know innovators are coming up with tools 
to better predict what cocktails should we be applying? What's going to be better for this person down the road? And and it's endless. The a number of things that are you know surfacing are endless. And we need to, in my opinion, entertain them all. And maybe they all don't work, but we need a place for these innovators to try. Because as I like to say, we need to to invest in the failure in order to learn. Yeah, it's a numbers game. (laughs) And they need to be given the chance. And if you don't have enough numbers financially in the bank to give the numbers of attempts, you'll never have the potential number of treatments available. Yeah. And we cannot move the needle the way we want to. Absolutely. So Mona, as we uh, get closer to the end here, I have two questions for you. And the first is, I'll tell you the both, and then, uh, then we'll hit the first one first. The first is, you know, um, what can my listeners do and how can they help you in your cause? And the second one I will ask you is a little bit more on the personal side, my little question back in time, you know, knowing what you know now, what would you tell the younger Mona um, <laughs> to help shock her potential uh, in her in her future? So let's go with the first. How can my listeners be a part of this and how can they help not only learn more, but also, you know, become more of an advocate for this kind of treatment? Yeah, so, well, certainly we'd be grateful if um, folks came to our website and checked out the campaigns that are going on. And our website is soundeffects.org. And I think also, I, I hope that our discussion just sort of opens some doors and opens people's minds to really better understanding this ecosystem of how science makes it to market, so to speak, and why the people need to be part of this and need to rally around where these bottlenecks are. And also, you know, what I, my real, my hope is that the public gets to know these innovators because currently they're kind of unnoticed and underfunded, and yet they are critical to fighting the war on cancer. Um, So that's my, (laughs) my, my hope for, for these, for your listeners. And I love it. And the second question, yes, you said, uh, yes, my younger self. Um, it's, yes. it's such an interesting question because I, I think, uh, you know, for me to take this journey, it has required a ton of personal growth, um, that personal growth that requires help and coaching and lots of reflection and um, and in a lot of cases, a lot of pain, right? And a lot of disappointment and dealing with all that. Yes. And I, when I, I'm this kind of person, I don't like to look back because <laughs> I think whatever has happened in the past was just perfect, was meant to get me to where I am today. But if I have to look back and give myself advice, my first bit of advice would be, I I wish I had, or I wish I had the advice to just simply believe and have more faith in myself and really stand in what I believe in. Because I think when you're going down a path where no one's going, it's so easy to uh, disappoint it around um, the folks that can't see your vision. And it's easy, easy to sort of second guess yourself. And so it, it's that it's sort of standing in, in what you know, and what you believe in, and in sort of believing in my own self and my own skills. But also, what's the other thing? I, I think having the patience was a, the other thing. It's, it's not going to be tomorrow when everything shifts. But it will shift. And it's having that enormous patience to see it through. 
I always um, would say, this is kind of my own quote that I say, no one's sense of urgency ever matches my own. And I don't know when I came up with that, but I remember the first time I came up with it was when I had a whole bunch of people that you know, I needed them to do something fast and it wasn't important to them. So they didn't move as fast. And, but the flip side is sometimes other people needed me to move at a different pace and I didn't want to, or need to at that point in time. And, and it's kind of that awareness of, you know what, things have to happen in their own time because you can't, you, there's some things you can't force. But I would love to see you if I could, if I had one thing, I'd love to see you go back to that first Thanksgiving and tell everybody, look, I've got a vision. So, (laughs) and we're going to be discussing cancer, cancer treatment and cancer research for a long time. So get used to it. (laughs) But I will say that Thanksgiving, it, it, it was my first realization, like, I can't talk about what I do in public you know, just because no one's there. And that was like, yeah. you know, I was in my 20s. It was like 20 and what years a shame. Ago. Yeah, what a shame. And But here we are. We now yeah. have treatments and clinical tools that are doing just using molecular components to fight and diagnose cancer. They're very real now. Absolutely. Whereas one point there was just it was just a pipe dream, like we didn't even think it could happen in our lifetime, um, but but it's but it is. So and, yeah, no, that's <laughs> and and this could be a whole other podcast too. But you know, I think yeah. when you talked about that time when you had the choice, you know, for you know cardiac uh, research, yeah. cancer research, or AIDS, that yeah. was the time when AIDS was really the you know. Yep that was that demanded all of our attention and i think that it was important and look at how much focus on one horrific disease what it made i mean because there was just substantial so now if we can take that and we can you know we can craft it now in an age where it's a little easier to think it oh well everybody's going to get cancer at some point in time and make it less something we just accept but something we know that we can actually impact but we have to change the way we do it maybe we can start to have different outcomes as well Yes, agreed. Mona, thank you so much. It has been a pleasure. And I know that this will resonate with a number of my listeners. So um, as everybody knows, I will have all of your contact information on the show notes as well, but they can find you at soundaffex with an A dot org and find you on LinkedIn and all over the place. So we will have all your connections, but mostly I want to, um, there's some things that I think that we could partner on in the future, which I'd love to do, but mostly I just want you to, to know that from my standpoint, what you're doing is is really disrupting, which is fabulous. And that's what we need is, is the ability to look and operate differently in order to achieve different results. Appreciate it, Michael. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Shock Your Potential. Learn more today about my book, Tell Me More, and about me at shockyourpotential.com and shockyourpotentialpodcast.com. Make it a great day.